Welcome to the Tech Cat Show with host Lori H. Schwartz. Each week we hear from established leaders in the technology and consumer industry. Finding out the scoop should never be this much fun. Now, here is your host, Lori H. Schwartz. Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome to the Tech Cat Show on this fantastic Wednesday afternoon. So often we're talking about new tech trends as it impacts your business, of course, and how um, how consumers are interacting with all these great new platforms and what can businesses do to leverage that. We haven't yet ever really talked about the impact of all these new media and entertainment devices and new technology on children and on teens who are rabid consumers of content and entertainment and so often determining what their parents buy, the ultimate consumers that we're we're going after who are controlling the wallet. So in today's show, we have a very exciting show, the fabulous David Kleeman, who is the SVP of Global Trends for Dubit, which is a research and strategy consultancy and digital studio that is entirely focused on children and teens. And they're based in Leeds, although David, of course, is based in D.C., so you, you're not going to hear a, um, a British accent. <laughs> and David's been very involved in children's media for many years. Let's have a big Tech Cat welcome for David. Yay! Did, if you like. <laughs> did you like that, that, uh, that applause? I did. I did. I seldom get that. <laughs> so, David, um, tell us tell us all about your background, and then, of course, we'll we'll dig right into what you're doing now. But I know that you did some time at PBS and a lot of other great institutions that that really look at the impact of media on children. So, we'd love to hear your background so we un- understand where you get all your smarts from. <laughs> I've been in this business for roughly 35 years now in the children's media business, and and. Every once in a while, I stop and think about the fact that when I got into it, multi-channel cable was really the, the new thing. Nickelodeon was just emerging as a kid's channel, not their, their green vegetable channel that they started as. So to, to have been in this business from multi-channel cable to pervasive everywhere mobile media today is, is really remarkable. I, I talk about myself as being a little of everything and all of nothing because I've gone down several different paths in my career and and always found that you know I want to go a certain distance down and learn a little bit about it but not stay in that one path. So I started out uh, kind of looking at it from an academic perspective, reading research and understanding research and conducting academic research around kids and media. But then, as you, as you mentioned, I went to uh, PBS and spent five and a half years in programming, uh, acquisition and, and development, program operations, the relationship between a broadcaster and, and its local affiliates or local channels, um, and scheduling then, of how you put together a, a, a schedule, something today's kids know nothing about. But, um and went from there to running a children's television festival in Chicago to choose America's Best Kids TV. It was modeled on the International Children's Television Festival that I still remain uh, connected with. I'm the chair of their advisory board. Uh, and that, we couldn't keep the, the festival going over time financially, so, but what we found out was what people really liked was to be brought together to talk about what makes good children's media. What, what do we mean when we talk about excellence in content, in uh, quality of, uh, you know, technical quality, in influence on children? So I've, I've been down the academic road, a little bit down the production road, down the distribution um, global and now working much more closely with digital digital media and technologies and what that means is that that uh, through my career what I've really tried to do is be a connector and sit at the hub of a wheel that includes education, research, child development, child health, um, production, distribution, digital technologies and figure out how we need to be talking to each other about these things so that, that we bring the best of our knowledge about how kids grow and learn to all the media that we create. Do you, do you think now then 
than ever before this conversation is happening in the living room between parents and you know I know quite often um, moms have come up to me in my school my daughter's eight years old because they know I'm a technologist they're often asking me you know how do we manage all of this not only screen time but just you know the devices and all of that and what's good for them and what isn't good for them so is this is this now like the topic that's that's coming to you all the time it's really an interesting mix because it is absolutely the topic among parents trying to manage all these things and and understand um, how technology is changing in their children's lives and how how the content that they're consuming is changing. But at the same time, I'm not sure that they're talking as much as, certainly as not as much as they need to with their children, that because of personalization of media and mobile media, a lot more time is spent on our own devices rather than gathered around one one device altogether or gathered around the television set. So it becomes a little harder to have that conversation, and yet parents are very concerned about it. Now, I'll, I'll back up quickly and say two things. One is every new technology that comes along, there is that uh, concern, there's that that fear that this is something that is ruining children's lives. It's changing their brain. We thought that about television when it came along, about computers, about, you know, every time there's a new development, we go through this cycle of, well, but it's not the way it was when I was growing up, and so it must be worse. Kids, you know, it's going to make them antisocial. It's going to do all the, you know, it's going to, they're going to consume more violence. And and it turns out in the long run that most of the time those fears are, are not, in, uh, not widely warranted. So I'll say that. Um, and also that I think we're finding that uh, kids are more savvy about the, the content they're consuming than we give them credit for a lot of the time. That, that uh, uh, Dubbit has been working on something that we call emotional scheduling that is showing up in our, our trends research, but also in some of the research we're doing for clients that in this world where kids are not limited to being on someone else's schedule or consuming you know, what someone else tells them to when they tell them to, they're making very conscious decisions about what they want to go in search of and what they wanted to do with media um, based on, on their emotional state, which has to do with what they've been doing and what they're about to be doing, time of day, uh, you know, a number of factors that come together. I um sorry I was just fascinated because I was thinking about how my daughter all of a sudden now um, is asking me to sign her up for fan clubs of um, book franchises that she likes and she now mm-hmm. likes to go online and dig into the into the content so lately she's been obsessed with Bad Kitty and um, so she's going into you know she's standing over me while I sort of surf around and I have no idea what I'm going to come across, you know what I mean? <laughs> so for, for me, that was, that, that's always like where my head goes is like, what, what is out there for them? What's, what's waiting for them? Well, um, that, that's an example of a perfect relationship between parent and child and, and media that she's coming to you and saying, I really like this on this platform. I want to see if I can, you know, I, kids will, if they love something, they will chase it across every platform available. They'll consume it in every form available. They'll they'll create around it as well. But what's great is that she's coming and saying, I want some help making sure that I'm finding the right thing here, that I'm not sort of going down the rabbit hole and finding something that, that's not going to make me happy. Yeah, it's funny because I think part of this is also because she doesn't yet have access to her own computer. She does have an iPad, but... Um um, and she is doing some YouTubing, which I have to start to monitor. But from from a business perspective, then, are your clients toy companies and other networks that cater to children's programming, like a PBS, but on the on maybe on the profit side? It's really quite a range. Although we we've done a lot for PBS as well. We um, if, if parents out there are familiar with the Cart Kingdom virtual world on on PBS Kids, we uh, built that for PBS in in cooperation with PBS. And in, in fact, the company got its start building the first flash based virtual world for kids back in 1999. Um, so we've been building virtual worlds for a long time, but. So we, we have public broadcasters, BBC and PBS, that have been clients of ours, but also we work with 
quite a wide range. Um, toy companies, we work a lot with Lego. We've done a lot of work with Mattel. Uh, but also um, producers, we were just a couple, couple months ago doing some uh, program evaluation for a new Netflix series that was trying to figure out uh, how kids relate to the characters within it which characters they like best, which ones they feel are, are sort of good role models for them. Um, and, and then the structure of the program. We, we have a, a pretty extensive benchmarking uh, system that's built, built on having evaluated over a thousand television shows so that we can help people figure out if the, the formal structure of their shows, when, when things happen in the plot, is working for them or needs to be rearranged. Well, oh wow, that's so it's really impacting storytelling. We actually have to take a break, David, but we're going to come back and talk to you more about trends in this space and maybe dig more into the emotionally scheduling piece that you were talking about it because it's really fascinating um, and, and see what kind of models are emerging um, in understanding um, you know consumption from young adults. So we're going to be back in a moment on the Tech Cat Show with the fabulous David Kleeman, who is uh, dropping insights on media and its impact on teens and kids. More in a moment. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The key point of contact between consumers and brands is technology. StoryTech, a boutique agency, empowers you to use that tech to deliver your message, engage your customers, and raise the bottom line. How do you track and exploit the trends? How do you stay ahead of industry disruption? And how do you maximize profit from content? From strategy to execution, the answer is StoryTech. Inform. Innovate. Create. Visit us at story-tech.com. That's story-tech.com. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. This is the Tech Cat Show with Lori H. Schwartz. If you want to find out more about our show or to leave a comment or question, send an email to Lori at TechCat.tv. That's Lori at TechCat.tv. Hi, everybody, and we are back with the fabulous David Kleeman, who is the SVP of Global Trends for Dubit, which is a research and strategy consultant and digital studio that's entirely focused on children and teens. And we've been talking about, you know, just the research that's going on uh, for a lot of toy companies and networks to understand, uh, you know, teens' behavior and children's behavior and, and consumption and what that all means. So David's company, you've come up with this idea or research concept of emotional scheduling. Can, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. What it, what it really comes back to is um, one of my favorite psychology studies of all time, which is the, the uh, uh, paradox of choice, where a grocery store put out a table with about six different kinds of jam on it and let people taste as, you know, as many of them as they wanted and then gave them a dollar off coupon to buy jam. And the next day, they put out a table with about 30 kinds of jam on it and let people taste and gave them a dollar off coupon. And what they found was that on the day that they, on the day that they had lots of jam, people sampled more but bought less. And that's what's going on in kids' lives today, except it's not jam. It's, it's media. There is so much choice out there that they're becoming paralyzed by what to choose next and, and how to find the next uh, favorite thing in their lives. And, and at the same time, we've gone to, a technology, to technologies where kids are not beholden to anyone else's schedule. You no longer have to watch SpongeBob at 4 o'clock on Thursday or you've missed it. And, you, know, you can't catch up and be smart on the playground anymore. Now you watch what you want when you want it. You consume it on multiple platforms. So what we're finding is that in the absence of, of those kind of uh, um, you know, guidelines or, or, or those kind of requirements, kids are scheduling themselves. The, the, it make, kids feel more comfortable when they're given some choice but not too much choice. So a good example is weekday mornings. The house is going crazy. 
you know, you're a little kid, you're a preschooler, everyone's getting ready to go to school, to go to work, um, preparing breakfast, you know that you should stay out of the way. But you also know that you're going to get picked up in, you know, in just any time now to go to your preschool, to go to babysitter, you know, to, um, you're going to get interrupted. Kids in that situation are choosing short form media. Even a preschooler will think to go off in a corner with the iPad and consume a short form video or play a short game, not get into something long because they know they're going to be interrupted. With older kids, it shows up in things like um, in the afternoon when they get home from school, everything goes on. So they've been without their devices for the full day. They, you know, they turn on the television, they put on the computer, they put on the tablet, the phone, and they're consuming on all those different platforms. They might be digging into Minecraft on the tablet while they're checking out some homework uh, help on the computer, while they're chatting with friends on, on the, the smartphone. What that means, and, and, and you know, we, we take this emotional scheduling um, concept and we're using it with clients to say, you not only need to know who your audience is now, you not only need to be thinking, okay, I'm doing this for 8 to 12-year-olds, but you need to be thinking, what time of day are they likely to be using it? What emotional state are they likely to be in when they're using it? What do they need at that particular time? What do they want? Um, and, and start building your content to match that. So if you're releasing new content you, for older kids, you do not want to put it out between 4 and 6 in the afternoon because their, their attention is just not there. It's on so many things. They're not going to discover something new. I, I am I'm blown away because every time you talk, I'm comparing um, sort of the day in my life with my own kid and um, the implications that are coming down the road for me. Now you have, yeah, go ahead. When I, when I describe this, the people saying, now that I think about it, I see it in my own home. And a lot of adults say, and I see it in myself as well. I, my consumption patterns for media are, are uh, you know, guided by, by my emotional state as well. Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting too, because the other piece of this that I've noticed is that sometimes... Uh, my eight-year-old is watching inappropriate adult cartoons that happen to be on late at night. If she wakes up or she can't sleep, she'll come into my bed, and I'm watching Rick and Morty, which is fantastic, but completely inappropriate for an eight-year-old, you know. But um, So she's half asleep, and she's kind of watching, and then the next day she kind of starts to talk about Rick and Morty. And so th- there's that piece, too, of how much of our consumption, adult consumption behaviors are impacting their, their behaviors just because they see it or they're exposed to it, you know, inadvertently? It, it's a, a huge question. And, and a lot of the advice that we see from places like Common Sense Media and that are, are that adults look first at their own media practices in addition to uh, trying to control their children's, their children's media practices because they see what we do. They model after it. Um, it's not a new thing. I, I remember my daughter is now about to be 30, and uh, I remember... Wow, you started young. <laughs> well, I'm very old. Uh, <laughs> I remember when she was quite young, um, I think it was actually the first Gulf War, that I was listening to the radio. I'm a, a news junkie, I admit it, and, and I was listening to the radio, and she started asking questions that I was not necessarily prepared to answer um, because she was hearing but not understanding the media that, that, that I was consuming. Right. Now, you have another research trend that, that you're digging into, which you're calling phonatomy, um, which is a model for evaluating a, an audience. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And, and, and that, too, relates to this idea that there's so much content out there that, that it becomes hard for kids to discover. But phonatomy in particular has to do with helping someone who's got content, whether it's a book, whether it's a, uh, you know, a movie, a television program, a game, an app, um, helping them figure out who are your fans uh, are, do you have a wide fan base that uh, you know sort of likes what you do, but but is not that devoted to it? Do you have a really deep fan base, or you know a small fan base, but they are so devoted to it um, that that they will chase it platform to platform and follow it and and consume you know create for it? 
helping you, helping people figure that out and then figure out where they would like to be. So you know, Minecraft is a really good example again, and, and it's one that I think a lot of parents are familiar with. When Minecraft first came out, the audience was very narrow, but really deeply devoted to it. It was kind of hard to work with. It was not an easy, you know, it was not a turnkey program quite yet. So the people who, um, and a lot of it was open source. So a lot of its original fan base really was, was helping to create the program as well as, as using it. Over time, those people who were really deeply devoted to it started to make YouTube videos about what they were doing in Minecraft, what they were building or modifications that they had come up with, uh, hacks that they had developed. And by being on YouTube, they started being discovered by more and more people, and younger and younger people. So kids started getting into it. And the company saw this and responded and started making it easier to use. They started developing the mobile versions. So that what they were doing was broadening their audience, but at the same time, they had to be really careful not to alienate those deep fans who had been their original fan base and who really wanted to, you know, to have their hands into it and, and helping to construct it. Um, and they really managed it quite well for, for a long time to uh, bring in new audiences, to broaden that audience, to create consumer products, to create new versions of the game, to create new ways for younger kids to play and be and be satisfied with it, um, while at the same time keeping their, their most devoted fans. It's not an easy thing to do, and, and uh, uh, you do see at times companies that, that try and, and don't succeed as well. And I know also you are looking at virtual reality as well, which we have talked about in almost every episode for the last year, just because it's really impacting everybody's business because it's it's just one of those hot trends that everybody's digging into. And um, as someone that's involved um, on the industry side of VR with uh, an organization called VR Society, I'm a little concerned about putting a headset on my kid, you know, and what what will that do? Um, so I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that. Sure. We are coming at VR from three different perspectives. Being a digital studio, we, we've been building some, not as much for clients or for, for putting out on the market, as much as uh, we're building a lot right now that we just want to understand uh, how it works and, and what's possible and what best practices might be. So that's one side. The other is that we're part owners, Dubbit is part owners of We Are VR, the, the biggest independent distribution site for VR content. And then the third is we're a research company. And so we want to know, especially if we're going to be advising clients that they should start building VR for kids or if we're going to be putting VR uh, content on uh, on a distribution platform that's that's aimed at kids, we want to know that it's safe. We want to know that it's it's uh, not going to cause problems. But even more than that, we want to know how to make it really good for kids. We want to know how to how to make it a satisfying experience and what they want to do with it. So we are now just about to enter actually the fourth phase of our VR research. Uh, we've done the first phase was putting kids in our our play lab in Leeds. We have a lab right there, so we have kids in all the time. Putting them in the Oculus, uh, it was the, the DK1, actually, that, that we were using with them. Letting them play for a, a little while, about 12 minutes, 15 minutes, uh, watching how comfortable they were, stopping them if they looked uncomfortable, or letting them stop if they were uncomfortable. Uh, using some of the benchmarks we've got from watching kids with other technologies and other toys to figure out are they are they engaged with it? Are they comfortable? What what is working? What is not? But then my favorite part was asking them afterwards. So what do you like? And and what would you want to do with this if you could play in VR? And the results from that were wonderful. Um, you know, you you can easily imagine uh, an eight to eleven year old boy. One of my favorite answers uh, was, "I want to be swallowed in VR and go through the digestive system." Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Doesn't that just sound 8- to 11-year-old boy? So, um, <laughs> that's, you know, that's incredible. They so quickly got the unusual perspectives you could get in a virtual world. So we had kids telling us, I want to be the bird in Angry Birds. I, right, I've always right. been on the side looking at it, but I want to be the one flying through the wall. 
The other thing that's, that should be really encouraging is kids went straight to education. They said, I, if we're studying ancient Rome, I want to be in the middle of the Colosseum and be able to explore it on my own. They said, um, we want to go back in, in history and be able to participate in, in key moments in history. They immediately got the idea of a virtual uh, chemistry lab or, or science lab. Um, so that was really encouraging that they saw it as a tool not just for play but but for learning as well. The second phase of the research was with well, uh, David. Hold hold that thought because I want to dig into that because this is fascinating. We have to take a, another break. Um, we're talking to David Kleeman, who is with. Uh, Dubit, which is a, a, a research and strategy consultancy focused on children and teens, finding out all about the impact of VR and entertainment media and digital platforms has on kids, how that impacts products that are being created for them, and also how it impacts their parents as well. So we're going to be back in a moment with David to dig in more into how um, how kids are being impacted with VR and some of the great research that they're doing, as well as some great work that David's doing on the social good side. So we'll be back in a moment with David Kleeman. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. The key point of contact between consumers and brands is technology. StoryTech, a boutique agency, empowers you to use that tech to deliver your message, engage your customers, and raise the bottom line. How do you track and exploit the trends? How do you stay ahead of industry disruption? And how do you maximize profit from content? From strategy to execution, the answer is StoryTech. Inform, innovate, create. Visit us at story-tech.com. That's story-tech.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio. Voice America Business Network. This is the Tech Cat Show with Lori H. Schwartz. If you want to find out more about our show or to leave a comment or question, send an email to lori at techcat.tv. That's lori at techcat.tv. Welcome back, everybody. And we are talking to David Kleeman, who is the SVP of Global Trends. I love when trends is in somebody's title, by the way, from Dubit, which is a research and strategy consultancy focused on children and teens. And we've been talking a lot about media and entertainment and new platforms and how it's impacting kids. Um, and David's done a lot of research around the impact that VR is having on kids. And you were about to dig into one of the second points about your research in this area. Yeah, the, the second phase of our research was um, what kids uh, could do and, and what uh, was difficult for them to do in, in virtual reality and also how they respond in, in the settings. Uh, one of the things that we found that I, I, I love is that kids are naturally social in VR. I think everyone looks at a child with a headset on and worries that uh, it's going to be, become an isolating technology. But as soon as we put the headset on, kids started narrating their experiences in it. So if there's another child in the room, they'd be telling them what they were doing and, and what they were experiencing. If there was the researcher in the room, they'd be talking with them about it. They would want to expand on the story of what happened with them once they, what they had seen once they came out of, out of virtual reality. Um, so, so we found that for them, it was, not, it was a, a social experience and it was a full body experience for them they you know adults sometimes when you put the headset on are kind of tentative about moving around kids were really eager to to uh, move around and explore the space around them one of the things we found though was they were very clear about wanting some kind of transitional object to take into the world with them. So they were uncomfortable in Google Earth at first because they were flying over the Earth and there was nothing below them. If they'd look down, they'd just look down to the Earth. Dubit created, uh, as I, I was saying, that we've, we've created a number of experiences because we wanted to find out what's possible. In one of them, you uh, cast magic at an acorn and... Uh, I guess at a bean seed and, and the magic beanstalk grows up and suddenly you're being transported up above the clouds on a bean leaf 
And what kids really liked about that was when they looked down, there was a leaf underneath them. Now, you know, they didn't have legs necessarily in VR, but, but just to see that there was some kind of platform underneath them made them much more comfortable with, with using it. So we got a lot of knowledge out of that second round for developers of content for VR, for um, uh, you know, thinking about what a, a best practices experience would be like, how to onboard children to a VR experience so that they know what to expect. We found that kids who had seen a YouTube video about the content that they were about to consume under the headset were much more much quicker to adapt to it and much quicker to um, to enjoy it. So we see that you know there's potential to before you go into a VR experience, give kids a YouTube video of what they're going to be seeing and what it's going to be like, or maybe even use that social nature of VR and let kids you uh, use kids narrating what their experiences have been like. So it's a peer-to-peer kind of thing. We just finished the third phase of our research, which was the health and safety side. I know that a lot of people are really concerned about the effect of virtual reality on the developing child. So we did a round of research at Leeds University Hospital with with the university, with uh, experts on physiology from the university on vision and balance and looking at does it affect children's does a, a short-term play affect children's vision? Does it affect their uh, stereoacuity, their depth perception? And does it affect their balance? And basically what we found was there is maybe a very small effect on uh, visual, on stereoacuity, on, on dis, um, depth perception. Vision was not really affected except if a child goes into the experience with some kind of vision deficit to begin with. And balance, uh, there, there was pretty much no effect. There was one child who kind of threw off our balance measures because she had fallen in the in the VR experience trying to reach for something that was uh, placed outside her reach, uh, you know, in, in scale, a child's scale versus an adult scale. So she fell over and she was still kind of affected in balance. The fourth phase that we're going on to now that we're just about to launch is everything so far has been short-term experiences. It's all been in a lab, either at the university or at Dubbit. Now we're going to place VR equipment in families' homes and let them play with it for a month or so and document that experience. And we'll go in and talk to them about what they're doing. We'll ask them to make diaries, whether visual or uh, whether uh, written or, or spoken. And then we can get a sense, not only of is there, and, and we'll continue the, the health and safety testing, the vision and balance testing over time to see if a longer exposure has any effect there. But really, the other thing we need to figure out is, do families want this? Are they going to use it on a day-to-day basis? How are they going to use it? Are parents and kids going to play together? Are kids and kids going to play together? Uh, you know, Does it become an isolating experience, or do they find ways in the home to make it social? Because an experience in the lab is one thing, but knowing how families adopt it into their, their media plan is, is quite another. That's a, it's, it's so interesting. Um, I, I was talking to you uh, during the break about are are you noticing or is there is there movement in this area of um, of consumer electronics folks uh, coming to you to understand how kids use things because I've noticed that my daughter adapts to every new interface voice activation everything much faster than I do and that's sort of her initial entree into discovery is using some of these newer um, mechanisms. And so to me, it seems like her brain is going to be forming differently and her understanding of navigation and interface is going to be different. So is that, is that a real thing? Am I making that up? And, and are um, consumer electronics companies looking at that? I I don't think you're making it up at all. I I, I think uh, it's a very real thing and it is something that, that, uh, you know, every company that's developing a new piece of content or, or developing for a new platform has to think about one, one of my favorite aspects of it is no matter how much we plan for how kids are going to should use something, how we want kids to use a new device, a new piece of content, kids are going to find a way to make it their own. So in our VR testing, we were uh, doing the, the um, job simulator. And we had kids who were in the cooking in the restaurant and took the menu and tried to wash it first and then tried to set it on fire in the fryer. Um, not something that the 
creators intended i'm sure you know something that they had to kind of allow for but but uh, again kids were saying okay i got it now how can i play with this how can i mess with this and and our advice for content creators i i've got a friend who was in the early early generations of this he created the original living books uh cd roms he's still making apps and and recently he made an app where you were supposed to tap on something and he was finding the kids were tap 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 you know they wanted to tap it really fast and it was breaking the app so he went back to his engineer and he said uh what do we do about this and the engineer said well i can disable it if they tap more than three times quickly i can i can make it so it stops working for a few seconds and he said, no, if, if that's how kids want to play with it, let's make it a feature, not a bug. Figure out something unique that happens when they, when they tap fast versus when they tap slowly. So if, if you're designing for kids, understand that they are going to find, they're going to test the limits of everything they play with. Uh, and it, has, it goes for toys as well. And, and try to find ways to accommodate that, to accommodate their, their curiosity and, and their inventiveness. That's so that's so smart. I mean, I, I just, I think their brains are like, you know, sort of the, the future human brain. And so to me, I would be hanging out with a kid all the time if I was designing something. <laughs> um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about the work that you're doing on the social good side, your involvement with an organization, um, Hope Works. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. This is something, you know, I, I think we've all experienced it in the last couple of years that there is so much bad news. You, you mentioned it earlier, kids consuming things that are not age appropriate for them. News is all around us and they're seeing things they just don't understand. They're seeing refugee camps and they're hearing the, the tone of some of the political discourse in the U.S. and, and, and everywhere. And it, it makes them anxious and it makes them concerned about the future and it, it makes them want to know... Um, sort of what, what role they can play in trying to make things better. Uh, it, this started with two executives from the UK, one who is the head of children's at Sky Television and the other who is a long-time executive in CBBS, the preschool channel of the BBC, who sat down and thought, what would happen if we commissioned a range of short content for kids, all built around the idea of hope and resilience and all offering kind of advice to kids, not not sort of direct advice, but but through narrative, offering them ways that they can see the positive, ways that they can plan for the future, ways that they can contribute to their communities, that they can be open to, um, to diversity and difference. Uh, and, and they recruited a board of, of advisors. I'm, I'm on that board. And we are, we've got about three films already in production that we hope will be ready for the Children's Global Media Summit coming up in Manchester, UK in December. But we have interest from a lot of other content creators, broadcasters, as well as independent producers in making films for this. And, and the idea is uh, wide open distribution. So if you contribute a film, you're going to get the rights to all of them. And you can use them across platforms so that kids will start finding them on their broadcaster, on broadcasters, also on YouTube, and uh, you know, on all the different platforms where they consume. And they'll see this range of, of great stories, really well-produced stories, uh, with these two executive producers uh, from Sky and, and CBeebies, um, that, that will offer them a little vision forward. Oh, that's so cool. Um, now, you mentioned the World Summit coming up in, in Manchester. Is that like the gathering for folks that are looking into, uh, you know, research around kids and how they're using things and entertainment media? It, it's interesting. The World Summit happens every three years in a different part of the world. It started in 1995 in Melbourne, Australia, and has been going every three years since then. There are a lot of different kinds of conferences in children's media. There are the festivals where you bring, or the, the markets where you bring the things that you intend to sell. So actually MIP Junior and, and MIPCOM, the, the big international markets are next week in Cannes. And people will be bringing their new, their new content and trying to sell it globally. There are the festivals where you bring the things that you're most proud of and, and that best represent your, your country or your company and show them off and seeking to win prizes. And I'm the advisory board chair to the biggest of those, the uh, Prisioness International that takes place every other year in Munich. 
has been going since 1964, and is really the world's gathering to sit down and, and talk about the health of the uh, of, of the trees in the forest. And then there are the summits and, and other conferences like them that are about issues, uh, that are about research, that are looking at the health of the forest itself, of, of uh, what kind of, of media environment are we creating for children right now and how do we need to support it with um, with good content, but also with good policy, reg- regulation where necessary, what research do we need to be conducting? How do we support the efforts of the developing world to make sure that, that uh, as new technologies come along, they're not left behind? And how do we make sure that there are uses of those technologies that are appropriate for, uh, for all different parts of the world? Wonderful. All right, we're going to take our last break, um, and when we come back, I want to hear about what's coming up for Dubbit um, and where you're going to be speaking next, um, and maybe a little bit, too, on, you know, how has marketing really changed in terms of, of uh, kids? You know, are we marketing differently to kids? I, I mean, I remember Saturday morning cartoons and getting really confused about what was the toy and what was the show. And that still, I think, is is the game. But we'll be back in a moment with the fabulous David Kleeman from Dubbit, who is all knowledgeable and all powerful about children and media. We'll be back in a moment. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. The key point of contact between consumers and brands is technology. StoryTech, a boutique agency, empowers you to use that tech to deliver your message, engage your customers, and raise the bottom line. How do you track and exploit the trends? How do you stay ahead of industry disruption? And how do you maximize profit from content? From strategy to execution, the answer is StoryTech. Inform, innovate, create. Visit us at story-tech.com. That's story-tech.com. Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. This is the Tech Cat Show with Lori H. Schwartz. If you want to find out more about our show or to leave a comment or question, send an email to Lori at TechCat.tv. That's Lori at TechCat.tv. Now, I'm wondering, are, are marketers um, a big part of your clients, you know, brands coming to you with advice about how to communicate to, to um, kids? You know, we're, we're not an advertising-based agency or anything like that. So, so what we're trying to do is help people make great content. But marketing to children has, be, has never been more pervasive. And, you know, I realize as I listen to myself talk here that I'm, I'm really an optimist about children and media. I, I believe that uh, there's a lot of great content out there and kids make great uses of it. And it's got great potential both for learning and for play. But there are cautions as well, and I, I, I don't want to come across as, as uh, blind to those cautions. I mean, right now, the level of marketing to children and the level to which they are able to understand it uh, the, when they're being marketed to, I, I think, is, is a real difficulty. That, um, you know, it used to be commercials on television, and, and even there, we were there was a requirement after a certain point that you put a little bumper in that said, we'll be back after these commercial messages. It at least made kids stop and think about what's a commercial message and how is this different from the content. Today, there are no bumpers like that, and, and you know, as, as kids come on social media, as they... Um, 
search through YouTube. I'm not sure they always realize just how much data is being, I'm, I'm sure they don't always realize how much data is being collected and how much uh, that's being used to influence what's marketed to them. Um, I, I, yeah. Hello? I, I lost my train of thought. So. <laughs> oh, no. We were talking about um, just the marketing piece because I was sharing with you um, how, you know, again, my eight-year-old um, gets imprinted so easily. So we're in the, you know, she's in my shopping cart or pushing it with me and we walk by OxyClean and she literally repeats their log line to me as if it's a product that we need right away. You know, and I'm always like, wow, commercials actually work on her because I don't even hear them anymore, but they really imprint on her. Absolutely. And they, they always have. I mean, kids, kids remembered the commercials on Saturday morning television when they when they were little. But now it's not just on television. It's also on their phones or on their tablets or, or you know, everywhere they go. Um Oh, in the mid, the app, the app advertising, like for, um, you know, the um, micropayments inside of apps. So if I do download an app for her that she wants and I've approved it, um, inside of that app are like 500 more ads for more apps or micropayments to get the coins or the jewels or whatever it is. And that's pervasive as well. And that's really hard to control. You know, I so I, you know, I've had to put that that um, Apple family um, lock on on her iPad so that I can only approve what she downloads. Oh, for, for downloads and purchases. Yeah. I was just at a conference last week called Digital Kids, and the overarching topic of the entire conference was privacy and safety and security. And tied into that is the fact that there is not really at the moment a fair and sustainable financial model for kids media you know some of the best companies uh, that used to give away their apps for free are now uh, having to charge or go to prescription or uh, subscription models um, there's in-app purchases which are at some level inherently unfair to to children but companies are trying to uh, to make a go of it and and you know we very quickly went from families paying $50 for a console game to families saying 99 cents for an app. That's, that's outrageous. How do we come to a middle ground where people understand that what goes into creating really good content for kids, really good interactive content, and that the people who make it need to make a living as well and that it's worth paying for if it's well-designed? God, that is so funny that you said that because I have now had to set like a $20 limit every month on like these little games and micropayments and to me you know twenty dollars is not that much but I feel like I had to start somewhere you know um, so because it is it is like I don't want people not to get paid for the content they create but um, you know she's kind of tortured constantly by <laughs> these things <laughs> you know t- totally tortured so where, where are you going to be next I know you do a lot of speaking so you're going to be at CES um, with um Kids at Play, um, and uh, we give tours there, so maybe we'll run into you. Um, Where else are you going to be? Actually, next week, I'm hosting a screening of Kids TV from around the world at WGBH in Boston, a a free event for children's media professionals. Fun. Amsterdam for the Cinekid conference, which I may I must say has the best digital playground of any conference worldwide. I always see things there that blow me away. And in November, I'm doing a tour of Australia and New Zealand, uh, giving talks about our research and attending the uh, producers' conferences in both Australia and New Zealand and an academic conference in Australia. So you're on the road a lot, um, spreading the research that you're doing and intaking what other companies are doing. Exactly. Going and speaking gives me the chance to listen. Last year, I put in about 160,000 air miles. This year, it'll be about 150,000. Well, it's good that your kids are in their 30s uh, because otherwise you would never see them. <laughs> um, and, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry? As I travel. Right. <laughs> and what about on social media? Are you doing a lot of blogging? Are you doing a lot of, you know, a sort of sharing of um, some of the pieces of your research uh, that are, are not, um, you know, just for your clients? 
we share, uh, we, we're a company that likes to share. Our VR report is now out and online, and uh, I, I don't have a short URL to give you right now, but if you search on Dubbit and uh, virtual reality and research, you should be able to find a link. We did a study with the University of Sheffield on kids zero to five and tablet use that is also freely available online at techandplay.org and spelled out techandplay.org. I uh, blog some uh, for Kidscreen and for the Huffington Post. I am fairly active on Twitter. I run a Children and Media Professionals Facebook group. If you just search Children and Media Professionals, we have 2,000 people from all over the world who are contributing knowledge, research, debate. It's a wonderful group. And I, I know I asked you what are some of the websites you go to and some of the things that you're reading, and you mentioned a, a book a book whose title really intrigues me, To Siri with Love by Judith Newman. Uh, what's yep. that one about? Uh, some of you may have read an article about a year ago in the New York Times about a woman whose son, whose autistic son, was in love with Siri, basically. Siri answered all his questions without getting impatient. Siri, the mother loved it, too, because Siri made him enunciate. It wouldn't let him swear at her. Um, and, and it was sort of, you know, as I say, infinitely patient. She's now written a book not only about that experience of, of uh, his experience with Siri, but about raising a child with autism. Um, and, and he's a twin, with a neurotypical twin, so about the challenges of those two things. It's just a lovely book. Uh, to Siri with Love, Judith Newman, um, that, that's something I've, I've certainly been recommending. Oh, interesting. And um, just in terms of your social media tags, where can people find you? At David Kleeman, D-A-V-I-D-K-L-E-E-M-A-N on Twitter. Um, and that's that's probably my main uh, place where I post things. That and Huffington Post, if you search on my name, and, and Kid Screen Magazine. And um, dubit.com for more information about all your research and how people um, can find out more about your company? Actually, dubitlimited.com, limited spelled out, and at, at dubit. So I no, love it. Great. No, limited on the Twitter handle, but uh, limited on the website. That's great. It's been fascinating talking to you, not only because I'm a parent myself, um, but also as a technologist. Um, you know, what I do for a living, often I wonder how am I going to bring this into to my, my the raising of my daughter. And so obviously this is a huge area that are, that's impacting multiple um, business categories because, again, these teens grow up to be the next, you know, the next consumer. Um, and we're all trying to understand what that next consumer looks like. So the research you're doing is so important also in, in protecting our kids as well. So thank you so much, David Kleeman from Dubbin who is the SVP of Global Trends there, leading the way in research and strategy um, on children and teen media, understanding what's happening with new technology and how it's all impacting them. Thank you so much, David. Thanks much. It's been a lot of fun. It's, you're such a smarty. <laughs> <laughs> Ask my kids about that. Okay, thank you so much. And we'll talk to uh, everyone next week with hopefully another Smarty. More on tech trends impacting your businesses. This is Lori H. Schwartz, your tech cat. See you all next week. Thanks so much for listening to the Tech Cat Show. Please join Lori H. Schwartz again for another great program next Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel and syndicated to the Voice America Women's Channel. 